adding me along. It's an honour and a privilege to be invited to share at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Welcome to anyone who's new uh, or counting days. Um, oh, um, I'm just trying to get that off the screen. Um, right. Uh, where was I? My sobriety date's the 26th of March, 1994. That was the day I walked into my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was told at that meeting, you can leave this room. You need never drink again if you so desire. That was a relief to me because I had come to understand that I couldn't live with alcohol and I couldn't live without it. And uh, and I was really, I was um, beaten to a state of reasonableness and open-mindedness and willingness. And I followed most of the instructions in the beginning as best as I could. And so the topic that I've chose today, um, thank you for that beautiful flyer as well, Janessa, that was beautiful, God and me. And the passage that I chose out of the big book is on page 29, and it talks about the structure of the big book. I'll just read back a little bit from 28. I know many of you are familiar with this. Some of you might not be familiar with it. And thank you to my friends from around the world who've joined me. It's so beautiful to see familiar faces and lovely to see the faces of people, um, friends I haven't met yet. There's no strangers in AA, only friends who haven't met yet. And so in um, the bottom of 28, it says, in the following chapter, there appears an explanation of alcoholism. So it's referring to chapter three, as we understand it. Then a chapter addressed to the agnostic. Many who once were in this class are now among our members. Surprisingly enough, we find such convictions no great obstacle to spiritual experience. So um, I want to apologise, but I don't want to apologise if the word God puts anyone off because the good news, the bad news is the word God appears in our uh, basic text over a hundred times. So there's no way I'm going to even go near um, too many of those references because I'll just be reading out of the big book the whole time. And 29 continues further on, clear cut directions are given showing how we recovered. These are followed by 42 personal experiences. And this is the actual paragraph that I wanted to focus on or sentence. Each individual in the personal stories describes in his own language and from his own point of view, the way he established his relationship with God. And yeah, our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened and what we are like today. So what I'll try to do is just talk about how I established my relationship with God, what I was like before, what happened and what my relationship with God is like today. Um, so the big book, you know, it's amazing that um, back in the early days, in the pioneering days, they could send this book out in the mail to a person. That person had no access to a sponsor or meetings other literature or anything. All they had was that big book and they followed these clear-cut directions and they recovered and they found someone else to work with. So if I have this big book, I'm okay. And if I follow the instructions. So going back, um, I was raised in a church-going family, but not full-on religious. And I'm grateful to my mum that she we were Lutheran, which I don't even know what that really means. 
Um, I haven't really educated myself on religion or theology, not that you need to in AA. I don't want to give anyone the wrong idea. That's not what this is about. This isn't a religious program. It's a spiritual way of life. And uh, one of the quotes I heard early on was, religion is for people who don't want to go to hell. Spirituality is for people who've been there and I've been to hell. And um, one of the things that I'm so grateful for when I get an opportunity to share, it does take me right back to where I came from, to where my alcoholism took me to that horrendous final rock bottom. And uh, my mum raised me with a belief in a simple belief in a loving God. And I would say my prayers at night and we went to church, Easter, Christmas, that kind of thing. I don't remember too much about it. Um, we came out to Australia on a passenger ship in the early 70s and it was like being on the love boat for a month and in all the um, parties and excitement, uh, I, I forgot about my prayers and, and the things that were going on in the family, which I won't detail, but alcoholism and other associated problems, uh, that all kind of, um, it, there was a reprieve from that on this passenger ship. Um, we were in close quarters, obviously, in um, cabins close to other people. So uh, it was it was a good time. It was happy times, good memories. We got to Australia and the problems um, piled up again pretty quickly. And suddenly I realised one night I'd forgotten the words to my prayers and I started crying. And I said to my mum, because I, I'd started speaking English and I'd said my prayers in Finnish. And she said, um, you know, we knelt down together, we said the prayers, and I felt okay again. I was okay because I had that faith in God that everything, that that God's here and we're okay and uh, I'm, I'm being looked after. As the years went on, I was probably about 10 and I really started to be aware of what was happening in the family. And I used to go to bed at night praying and asking God, please make it stop. And then I'd go to sleep with this feeling of comfort. God will take care of this. And the problems just kept, kept getting worse and worse and escalating. And no matter how hard I prayed to God, please make these things stop. And I, um, I just went, that's it. I don't believe in God anymore. I think I was about 10 when I made that decision. And I remember rather than sitting in church or in Sunday school, there was some horses in a paddock next door to the church uh, me and a couple of other kids would go outside and, you know, feed grass to the horses instead. And after a while, I just refused to go to church altogether. My drinking um, started uh, around about the age of 14 and escalated heavily to the point that I dropped out of high school. I didn't finish high school and um, went out to work and um, just led the party life. I thought, this is it. Um, this, uh, you know, happy days. Um, I led a double life. I went to work Monday to Friday, nine to five, paid my bills. Um, on the face of it, everything looked normal. I probably looked like quite a um, successful or ordinary young woman, but inside I was dying. And this is a progressive illness. It gets worse over time, never better. So while things on the outside materially looked okay, and that's the other thing, just jumping forward to today, I realise as I sat here having some quiet time before the meeting, I have been distracted by worldly things in the last few months. And uh, it's really good for me to come back to God. And when I was listening to, um, you know, God in a really, really conscious way, I do my morning practice and I do prayers 
that can become a bit automatic or rote at times. I've ticked a box, I've done it. But to come into a meeting and really focus on talking about God, and I could hear it as chapter five was being read out. There is one who has all power. And that one is God. May you find him now. You can find him now. And, um, you know, we completely, we, uh, you know, I can't think of the words now, but complete, completely abandoning myself to God. It's good to be reminded of these things, of my position, of the position I take in relation to God. And um, so where was I? Drinking, partying, drinking, drinking my way around Australia, geographicals, um, not seeing, travelling this beautiful country, but not seeing some of the major highlights that a lot of people would see, but knowing exactly what, what brand of beer they drink mostly in, in each city and state, which is pretty sad. And um, thinking that it's going to be better over there. Once I get over east, it's going to be better. Once I go up north, it'll be better up there. And there was many opportunities. I had great jobs. I met wonderful people. But um, my uh, alcoholism, alcohol dictated to me what I did and where I went and what happened. And um, as things started to get darker, I was about 19 and uh, alcoholic depression was setting in, the guilt, shame, the remorse the repeated loss of my self-respect and dignity, um, unhealthy relationships, unhealthy dependencies and demands on other people, blaming other people for my problems, being a victim. This kind of stuff really started piling up on me. And uh, we did a brief geographical, myself and a boyfriend at the time, over to Sydney. Uh, you know, I need a break. Let's, let's go to Sydney and have a little holiday, have a break. And uh, while I was there... I noticed the Gideon's Bible in the room and for some reason I took the Bible with me and took it home and uh, and I would look up topics in the Bible like loneliness. Um, alcoholism, I believe, is a disease of loneliness. I don't think anyone else could possibly understand the depth of loneliness of an alcoholic in um, active alcoholism, especially in those last dark days. And... Uh, and I found some things in, in the Bible. And again, sorry, not sorry, I'm talking about the Bible. This is just my experience. I can't change it. This is what happened. And, um, yeah, it talks about, you know, alcohol and why not to use it and these kind of things. So deep down inside of me, I had this idea that I probably shouldn't be drinking or certainly if I'm drinking, I shouldn't be doing the things that I'm doing and saying. And, but... And I saw the 23rd Psalm and I got comfort from that. That told me that God is there and I'm okay and will be okay, but I just couldn't see it. How? How? So um broke it off with the boyfriend. I thought, this is it. He's the problem. Obviously, he had a much worse alcohol uh, and drug problem that I did. So this is good now. I've got rid of the problem, which is him. And it, again, it was good for a little while. Um, I went out nightclubbing and, you know, had a, had a kind of new new burst in my 20s. And, um, but, you know, the drink driving came in, the, the um, behaviours, guilt, shame, remorse. I remember lining up uh, at a nightclub to go in and I just was gripped with this fear. Uh, the the bouncer's going to stop me at the door and say, no, you can't come in. 
and I just had this um, and I remember a friend of mine she was we were she was going out one Saturday night and she said um, oh are you coming out are you coming out Saturday night I said no I'm not and she said oh have you got are you going on a date I said oh the only date I'll be going on is with Alcoholics Anonymous and we laughed it was a joke but deep down I was scared I was scared that I might be an alcoholic I didn't want to be an alcoholic just that word alcoholic and I uh, think in Alcoholics Anonymous, we need to be careful not to let outside ideas, philosophies come into Alcoholics Anonymous. This is about alcoholism. We have a primary purpose to um, recover from alcoholism and help those who suffer from alcoholism to recover. We can't be all things to all people. It's just very, very simple and basic what we can do. And I turned to another friend at one time and said, I think I might be an alcoholic. She said, no, no, you're not an alcoholic. You know, you just know how to party and you know how to have a good time. I was so relieved to hear that. But she, what was she to know? And I don't know if she was an alcoholic or not. Sometimes the denial isn't just in me. It's in other people, uh, you know, that just that word, I think. And sadly, there's still a lot of misunderstanding, misinformation and stigma about alcoholism, especially here in Australia. It's It sometimes really distresses me. But thank God for our traditions, because that stops me from getting out there on a soapbox and um, trying to change this whole society. But anyway, going forward, got the Bible, trying to find the answer in the Bible. Um, and I found something in there. It said you can worship God and you don't have to go to a church. That was that was good for me because I didn't want to go to a church because what had happened was I'd been in the laundromat one day and I'd been asking, seeking, searching. The other things I looked for and tried was astrologers, palm readers, counsellors, psychologists, uh, more exercise, jogging on the beach. Uh, I mentioned the geographicals. I tried everything I could possibly think of to fix myself, make myself happy. Louise Hay, all these kind of things. And I was in the laundromat and there was this eccentric looking man and he started talking to me and he started talking about a church and I um, I thought, this is it, maybe this is it, this is a sign, this is meant to be. And so he invited me to the church the following day, which I went, filled with hope, maybe this is it, finally. But when I got to the church, it was awful. And it wasn't them. They were nice people. They were welcoming people. But what I saw was the contrast of, well, I judged my insides by their outsides. And they looked shiny, happy, healthy, clean, nice, good people. I felt the opposite of that inside of me. Dirty, unclean, unworthy, bad, you know, evil, whatever. And um it was like rubbing salt in the wound. I thought, I can't be here. I don't fit in with these people. You don't know where I've been Friday night, Saturday night. You don't know what I've been doing. I can't be here. They offered to come to my house to a Bible study. They were very kind and generous. But I knew when my heart sank, when I went into that church, I thought, no, this is this is not it. And uh, fast forward a bit more. I was at home on a Saturday morning. There was a knock at the door and uh, I did not have many friends come to visit. And it was um, some religious callers. And again, I thought, it's a sign. This is it. This is it. So I invited them in. 
you know, I know that some people take great pleasure in, you know, rejecting these religious callers, but for me, it's a, it's a sign. And we came in, we had a lovely chat, had a lovely talk. They gave me some pamphlets and uh, I said, yes, you can come back again. And, and remember, I was desperately lonely. I had nobody to talk to. Uh, I had drank most people out of my life. I was very alone and isolated. Anyway, um, I don't know. Things just got worse and worse and worse. And it was um, getting really scary, really, really scary. And, you know, it, it's 20 over 29 years ago. These could be distant memories. I could even forget what happened. But I try, I do my very best to keep that um, rock bottom experience alive, my step one experience alive. And I do that by talking about it when I'm sponsoring others. I bring it back. And because I never want to go back there. Uh, never ever want to end up back in that hell. Finally, when I tried everything and I was exhausted, I tried everything I could possibly think of. I'd gone on a, um, a tour of the Margaret River wine region. Uh, we have a beautiful wine growing region here in the southwest and uh, Western Australia. And if I drink natural wines or organic wines, like, as I say that now, I hear how ridiculous that is. But what can you do when I have an alcoholic mind and uh, I've got this problem? I don't know what the problem is. Something's seriously wrong. Maybe it's that cheap cask wine I'm drinking. So away we go, Margaret River. And I remember we came back again. I'm filled with hope. Gone to a lovely restaurant on a Thursday night. I can remember it. We've got this bottle of wine. We're going to have a meal, share this bottle of wine, and it's going to be lovely. Do you ever get that? It's like you've just about grasped the brass ring. I'm nearly there. I've just about made it. And this is it. This is my final hurrah. I'm going to beat this thing. And uh, what, what a great feeling. What a, what a um, feeling of victory. But what I didn't know is when I took that first glass of wine, I didn't know I was an alcoholic then. I could have maybe qualified for AA membership at 14, I don't know if I was born an alcoholic or not. I've got no idea and I don't care. I'm not interested for me in that question. What I'm interested in is my 12-year drinking career, pick a year, any year. There's a nightmare associated with my drinking, absolute devastation, incomprehensible demoralisation. When I heard that two-word phrase in the big book, that hit me. That's me. That's what I experienced. I love how the big book puts into words my experience in a way that I could never articulate before. And um, so we've gone, lovely meal, bottle of wine. I didn't know that once I'd taken that first drink, so all this stuff I've been describing, this is alcoholism, that mental obsession that I am going to drink like a normal person. I'm going to get control of this. Repeated failed attempts again and again and again. And meanwhile, it's getting worse and worse and worse which is the really, um, yeah, the thing that really gets me down. Why is it getting worse? It should be getting better. I should be getting better at this. Glass of wine. So the phenomenon of craving has now kicked in, okay? The mental obsession, relieved, I've got the drink. I didn't know that I didn't have a choice at that at that point after I've taken the first drink. Any, any idea of choice is gone because I had to have the second and I thought that I was just enjoying a second glass because you see people doing that. They have one or two glasses of wine with a meal, happy days. And I thought that's what I was doing. 
what I didn't know, phenomenon of craving, I get thirstier and thirstier the more I drink and I don't have a say anymore in what's going to happen. Um, man takes the drink, drink takes the drink, drink takes the man. And what where drink took me that night, it wasn't home. It was a weeknight. Remember, it's a Thursday night. I had work the next day. And um, so we finished the bottle of wine, finished the meal. Instead of just thanking my friend, thanks for a lovely evening. I'll see you next time. Wasn't it great to catch up? I have to drink more. So I say to her, let's go over to the Sail and Anchor. That's a hotel here in Fremantle. Uh, let's go over to the Sail and Anchor for a couple. <laughs> I mean, it, it seems a lot of people do that and it's okay. They might be heavy drinkers. They might be problem drinkers. They can somehow get away with that for a while. But for an alcoholic, I can't get away with it. So we go over there, have a couple of drinks. Next thing you know, it's midnight, the bar's closing. We've made some new friends. Hey, let's all go to you know someone's house. Out come the other substances. Then I'm driving home at 2.30 a.m. and uh, wake up the next morning uh, so demoralised, uh, totally bereft. I thought I was going to beat it. I thought this was it. And so finally, there was probably an, the last night of my drinking. I'm not going to go into detail of that. It was a nightmare. It was a blackout, in and out of blackout in the nightclub, you know, coming to at home. How did I get home? What time did I get home? Where's my money? That kind of stuff. And I cried out to God, why have you put me here? Because I didn't get any satisfaction. Even though I had a good job, uh, materially I was doing quite well, that didn't bring me any satisfaction. It didn't bring me any meaning. I just didn't care about it. And I cried out to God, why have you put me here? If I'm here just to um, go to work at a job which I hated, I felt no joy getting up in the morning, going to work and going to this job. And looking back, I was very, very uh, privileged and lucky to have that job. And it was a good job. And I had really nice work colleagues, but I didn't see it that way because nothing was ever good enough for me. I was a chronic malcontent and a victim. And I had a massive uh, entitlement, defect of entitlement. Um, so I'd cried out to God, if I'm only here to go to work at a job I hate to get money to buy stuff and pay bills, which I hated paying bills. I mean, I don't know if anyone enjoys it, but today I see that that's life. If I want things, if I want electricity, I'm going to have to pay for it. I can't expect to get it for free. And so I'd cried out to God and I kind of forgot about this um, prayer. Now, I wish I'd kept a journal because I don't know if it was a week later or two weeks later because I'd cried out to God and said, why? I demanded from God to tell me, why have you put me here? If I'm here to for what I just said, money, stuff, bills, then I'm out. I've made up my mind. I'm going to end my life. I refuse to do this anymore. And uh, yeah, as I said, a week, two weeks later, I don't know, I found myself in my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, what had happened was uh, I told my mum finally, I, as I said, I led a double life. I lied to my mum constantly about what my life was like. I wanted her to be proud of me. I didn't want her to be ashamed of me. And, uh, and I told her about my promotion at work and how good everything was going. And we'd sat and had a chat for a couple of hours one Saturday morning or one Saturday afternoon, I should say. And something, for some reason, the truth had to come out of me. And just as she was leaving, I said, Mum, there's something else I've got to tell you. 
I've got a drinking problem. I think I might be an alcoholic. And to say those words devastated me and the floodgates opened. I was sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And maybe it was that feeling of safety. I mean, my mum has been my rock and continues to be my whole life. I'm so blessed and grateful for her and uh, and for that loving, uh, that idea of a simple loving God and that simple faith that she imparted to me. But anyway, my mum's, my mum freaked out. She knew there was something wrong, but she didn't think I was an alcoholic, but she probably didn't know what an alcoholic was either. And um, she gave me the phone book. She gave me the phone number of an alcohol and drug support line and said, here, ring this number. If you want to do something about it, you have to do it yourself. I can't do it. She picked up a uh, bag and keys and left. There I was alone in my apartment with the phone book and I rang that number. And I said to the guy, I think I might be an alcoholic. So there's been this questioning in me all the time. I had a suspicion I might be an alcoholic, but I didn't want to be an alcoholic. I don't want to be an alcoholic. <laughs> Anything but that, please, God, no. And uh, the guy said, don't be too quick to label yourself. And I was terrified because I thought I must have a serious mental disorder because of my bizarre behaviour, my double life, the way I presented at the work at work in the office Monday to Friday, nine to five, was very different to the way I presented at bars and nightclubs and parties around town. And uh, and uh, I was hungover. I felt very sick. I was scared. And uh, I said to him, okay, if I'm not an alcoholic, what's wrong with me? I wanted him to tell me. It's like, okay, you're a counsellor. You tell me what's wrong with me. And I said, every time I drink, I can't stop. I make a fool of myself. I feel ashamed. I feel embarrassed. And I was really panicking now. This is this weird, my alcoholic weird thinking. One minute, I don't want to be an alcoholic. Next minute, if you tell me I'm not an alcoholic, I'm freaked out because I don't know what's wrong. And uh, he couldn't tell me. He, I don't know what was going on for him. But thank God, thank God that man said, uh, maybe you should try AA. But some people simply, some professionals simply hear in Australia, we'll never refer to someone yeah, someone to Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, which, as I said, distresses me. But that's how it is. I've got to accept the world as it is and uh, just uh, stay in my own lane, stay in my own hula hoop and use this gift that God has given me, this miracle of my life, the miracle that I'm even alive, that I'm sober, that I'm a fairly ordinary uh functioning member of society. I have a host of friends in and out of AA. My world is expanding continuously. Um, opportunities come my way. Abundance reigns on me because of one thing, because of my uh, membership, active membership in Alcoholics Anonymous. Anyway, I rang AA that first night, 26th of March, 1994. Now, I, now I'm hoping, well, this is Alcoholics Anonymous. These people, they're going to know. They're going to know. Maybe they'll tell me, nah, you're too young. You're okay. You're not an alcoholic. And they did no such thing. It was just, I don't even know if it was a man or woman who was um, on the phone line that day. They didn't even ask me anything. They told me about themselves. They shared their own experience, strength and hope with me about how they know they're an alcoholic. I'd never heard such truth before. I was absolutely blown away. and. Um, Anyway, got to got to that first meeting, and uh, here's how God. So I have, um, you know, for me in my uh, sobriety or this way of life, 
this spiritual way of life through Alcoholics Anonymous. I have my 12-step program, which I um, follow these principles and practices. There's the fellowship. All of us gathered here today is the fellowship. And there's my higher power, the one that has all power. So I need these things, these three things every day, but they're all interconnected because God works through people. For me, I can't just take this big book and my spiritual practices and go off by myself and uh, live in a mountaintop or think that I'm going to blend into society on my own with my big book and with my God. I need you as well because God works through people and I need that. And uh, when I got to that first meeting, I got off the train and I didn't know which side of the train station to go um, to find the meeting. So I was stood there. I don't know to go left or right. How do I know where to go? I was hung over and felt irritated, of course. Why? Why? You know, it's dark out here. I can't see anything. And all of a sudden there was a man who was um, quite a bit further up ahead of me along the bridge. Suddenly he turned around and started walking back towards me and he was talking to me as he was walking and I couldn't understand what he was saying and I felt so irritated. But who is this guy? What's he saying? I said, what? And he, he was mumbling, oh, I think I've lost my key. Oh, did you see a key? And again, something not of me asked him, I said, do you know where this church is? And he said, yes. And he looked at me and he goes, there's a meeting there tonight. I said, yes. And he said, well, I'm going to the meeting. I can walk with you. So this man and I walked together to the meeting and he shared his story with me as we were walking. He said he'd been in and around AA for 20 years but was only sober four weeks at that time. All I heard was he hadn't had a drink for four weeks. And um, he seemed pretty normal. He, he seemed nice, you know, ordinary nice guy. Anyway, we get to the meeting. I get greeted. So thank God there was someone at the door uh, doing service. Someone was doing step 12 while I was on step one and they um, were in the position of greeter, which I today believe is one of the most important roles in a meeting is the greeter because someone like me turns up broken, uh, ready to run because I had plan B. My plan B was um, if I don't like these people, which was highly likely, I was very hostile, hated everyone and everything. I didn't know that mostly it was rooted in my own self-loathing. And if I don't like these people, that's it. I am going to take my own life. I'd, I'd, made, I'd made up my mind because I'd already said to God, I'm not doing this. So um, here's this woman at the door, crystal clear blue eyes, looking straight into my eyes, warm handshake smile she smiled and welcomed me like as if she was welcoming a long lost friend and that to me was a spiritual experience I felt the love I felt the warmth and the welcome I couldn't understand it I couldn't understand someone like me that I would be welcomed and loved like that and um the it wasn't what I thought it would be. The picture I had in my mind of Alcoholics Anonymous was half a dozen old men in trench coats clutching their um, bottles with the brown paper bags. That's where I thought I was going. <laughs> um, what I saw was these men and women of all ages and well-dressed and 
just nice, nice looking, good vibe. They were happy. They were chatting. And uh, anyway, the meeting went on and I I was just blown away of hearing these stories and this honesty. And I could relate. I could identify. It was like, oh, I'm not the only one that's done these things. I'm not the only one that thinks like that. What is this? Oh, it was, it was mind-blowing. And I saw the serenity prayer and I saw the word God. And that strange paradox, people like me that lived very ungodly lives, but God's here and there's this welcome and love. And yeah, that would, that, and that's, I think a real gift was given to me on that first day. It, it, it um, changed my world. It really changed my world. And the woman who met me at the door, uh, she offered to give me a lift to the train station. I didn't have a car for the first four years in sobriety. I'd had to sell my car because I couldn't trust myself not to drink and drive. So what do you do? You sell your car, right? <laughs> any any person in in any person with some sanity would just stop drinking. How simple is that? But no, I sold my car. Anyway, so first four years, no car. Sometimes I'd walk five kilometres to a meeting. Sorry, I don't know what that is in miles, but it's a 45-minute walk. Um, and the woman said, listen, seeing as you didn't get to share in the meeting, I'll give you a lift home and we can have a share in the car. She was going um, from one side of town to the other to my house and then going back over to the other side. So she went right out of her way for me. Again, a demonstration of um, someone stepping out of themselves, stepping out of their own comfort zone, self-sacrificing her time and money and effort and energy to try to help me and to try to carry the message to me. And that woman's still in my life today and we have a special bond. And uh, she said to me in the car, so what did you think of the meeting? I said, yeah, it was good. It was great. What I'd heard was stories of jails, car crashes, asylums, rehabs. It was all very exciting. I hadn't done any of that. None of that had happened to me. And um, I said, oh, it was great, but I'm not sure if I'm an alcoholic. And she said, maybe you're not. Oh, there's that hope again. This woman knows she's an alcoholic. She obviously knows what she's doing. Look how confident she is. She's, she knows everything. She's two years sober. And uh, she said, maybe you're not. Hope rises. And she said, but for me, once I start, I can't stop and I can't guarantee my behaviour. That was the nail in the coffin. Me too. Okay, I'm an alcoholic. And um, so me and God, what I was like, what happened, what it's like now. Um, yeah, I don't know. I had to condense 29 years of sobriety into a few minutes. Um, I haven't always been in love with God. I was um, focused as reflecting on this uh, earlier have a beautiful daughter she's never seen me drink um, what a gift and a blessing when she was eight um, she was diagnosed with a serious potentially fatal illness my instant response was anger anger at God and yeah my selfishness is still there my selfishness my daughter's eight now. She's just starting to get to the point where she can do some things for herself. And um, this put me back into, you know, 
uh, nightly observations, waking up at all times of the day and night, watching her constantly. Um, and I didn't really handle it with grace. I didn't handle it with grace. Going back a bit as well, I had become complacent in my program. A lot of defects had come in. I wasn't doing um, a strong um, practice of steps 10, 11 and 12. I'd fallen into the trap of just don't pick up the first drink and go to meetings. Uh, with that formula, I became very, very sick. I was gripped with um, horrendous alcoholic depression. Again, it was a nightmare. It was an absolute nightmare. And I got to the point of suicide, dry in AA. Um, but I had a new experience um, with God and with the program. Luckily, I found a new sponsor, started again with the big book, started sponsoring others. This is so important. I'm, I'm um, securely linked in the middle of the chain. There's my sponsor, I'm linked with her and I'm linked with my sponsees. That, that's so important for me. I can't be just out there on my own, um, free ranging. It doesn't work for me. And I've really had to look at that lately. What I've been looking at what other people are doing and what I perceive them to be getting away with, but that's not my business. I just need to focus on what do I need to do? I know what I need to do. I've tried lots of different things over the years and I know what works. Um, today, my daughter's health is good. She's still alive. The fact that she's alive every day, I must not take that for granted. Um, and um, yeah, God, God and me. So life has been good. I went to university, took me a long time, a day at a time from day one at undergraduate to the day I graduated with my master's. That was 17 years, one day at a time. I went part-time, I worked, I did lots of things in between. I loved being a uni student. What I found was they have 26 weeks of study and 26 weeks of holidays. So why wouldn't I stay at uni for as long as I possibly could? And I met lots of wonderful, wonderful people along the way and had wonderful experiences. I have a career today that I enjoy. I've been in a job that um, I've been in the same job for 10 years and I get along well with my colleagues most of the time. Sometimes there's conflict. Again, sometimes I don't handle it well, but most of the time I can blend in, I can fit in. That's all I want to do. And AA has taught me through our traditions of unity, primary purpose, um, non-affiliation, staying away from controversy, um, principles above personalities. I take these sort of principles into my work life as well and into my life in the community. I get along okay. I get along well with my neighbours. I'm not chummy pally with them all. I'm not that kind of person, but we're all on friendly terms and we do some swaps, some bartering of um, produce with one of my neighbours. Um, and I continue attend uh, home group membership for me is an absolute must. Uh, there's been times out there when I've uh, moved moved house or things have changed in my routines where I haven't had a home group, where I've uh, referred to myself as an AA orphan when I don't have a home group. So I'm not an orphan today. I'm committed um, at my home group. I'm currently the GSR, my um, general service representative, and uh, my two-year term is going to expire in um, February, so I will rotate out of that. I'm not going to cling to a position in AA and prevent someone else from having an opportunity to serve. That's why our spirit of rotation is so important in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, what else? Yeah, my attendance at my home group, uh, Friday night, Sunday night, uh, I try not to miss wherever possible. And um, I just do what I can. I get there early, get there half an hour early, help set up. 
And again, the greeting, if there wasn't a greeter at the door, I turned up a little bit late. It took me a long time. I was going straight from work to the meeting. I got to the meeting. There was no greeter at the door. I felt a bit upset. <laughs> and, um, I thought, okay, if, it, if it's to be, it's up to me. Just do it yourself then. So I did it. I stood out the front and, and did that role. And, and it's a joy and a blessing and a privilege to meet someone at their first meeting. Back in February, a guy wandered in. Uh, we have a rehab that comes to our meeting, um, which is a real highlight for me. I love to be where there's newcomers to try to give that hope and try to carry this message. And a guy wandered in and I said, oh, are you with the rehab? He said, no. I said, oh, are you just here on your own? He said, yeah. I said, is this your first meeting? He said, yes. And I'm like, wow, bingo, come on in. And um, introduced him to the um, home group guys. And I watched that guy get his six-month chip recently. And um, the, these are the blessings. Why would I want to miss this? Why would I? Because people, they see it. Oh, you still have to go to meetings. And people still have this idea that, gosh, what a dreadful life. She must have no drinking. Um, I remember it, uh, I was going through a particularly hard time where I'd split up with my daughter's father. And I was telling her my story of woe. This was at my time where I wasn't very spiritually well. So I was telling her my story of woe and my problems. And she said, oh, Toya, and you know what the worst thing is? I said, what? She goes, and you can't even drink. <laughs> and um, I just laughed. That just cracked me up so much. I said, Carla, that's the best thing about my life. And um, that just her saying that helped me put, thing into, put things into perspective. But um, I went on a cruise. Anyway, so much has happened, you know, uh, and I, I encourage anyone to read the big book and get familiar with our, um, with our promises that are all through the book, not just the step nine promises, but I don't have to avoid any people, places or things. I'm a free woman today. I get to live a full, whole life. I get to do anything and everything I want. There's just one thing I can't do and it's drink. It's probably more complicated than that. But anyway, now um, I'm going to share this because it's about God. But um, my brother and my only sibling, sadly, um, sadly for me, but he took his own life in um, five months ago. And I've recovered somewhat where I can talk about it. And I'm uh, not, you know, completely bereft. But it's still early days, I understand that. And I thought, how did I get to the age of, you know, how did I get to be in my 50s and I don't know anything about grief? So this has been a new experience, the loss of my brother and coming to understand grief and to know grief. Um, but when I got the news about my brother, my immediate thought was, God, I have to go to God. There's no other way I'm possibly going to get through this. Nobody, nothing in this world under the sun is going to get me through this except for God. And um, and I just had to cling to my higher power and go to my higher power and trust in God and stay in the moment and listen to myself as well, listen to my spirit. There were times that I had to push myself, get up, go to a meeting. Uh, there were times I had to say, just stay home, just lay in bed. It's okay. You've been hit by a truck. Um, I... Um, I was at a doctor's appointment and uh, he's been trying to encourage me to seek professional help, grief counselling. I went to one or two sessions. Um, 
I just didn't find it that helpful because what I found with grief is there's times when I need to talk about it and want to talk about it and it just comes out. Um, and God has blessed me with so many beautiful fellows in AA through my service, through my meetings, attendance, just through showing up. My beautiful sponsees have really, they've, they've just by them being there, they've helped me so much and given me hope and encouragement. And another AA member who stuck by me, she just stuck by me so close. And she said to me, a lot of people are going to say to you, I'm here if you want anything, just ring me. In my grief, I couldn't reach out. I couldn't ring anyone. I just couldn't. So she said, I will ring you every day. And she rang me every day to check in with me and uh, just made all the difference. And so what I found is this fellowship. So my God, I went to God, but this fellowship that has carried me again, the fellowship that carried me when my daughter got sick, fellowship carried me when my relationship broke up. Um, it's just always there. How fortunate are we? And this was one of the reasons why I fell in love with Alcoholics Anonymous. Before I started drinking, I'd been a bookworm. So when I got to AA and my brain cleared enough that I could read, I read every single book in Alcoholics Anonymous that I could get my hands on. And I fell in love with it. When I learned about the history, I saw this amazing thing that these act of providence that brought Bill and Bob together. I'm now connected to that. We're all connected to that. I'm a member of a worldwide fellowship based on love and service. How can that be? That is, um, Lillian Roth was um, an early AA member. She wrote a book called I'll Cry Tomorrow. And her second book was called Beyond My Worth. And that's a phrase that I identify with. I talk about these blessings and abundance that rains on me. I try to repay to Alcoholics Anonymous. I try to pay it forward of what's been freely given to me. And what I find is this debt to Alcoholics Anonymous grows and grows and grows. Even with this um, grief, this traumatic experience that happened, I don't know. I'm okay. I don't know how I do. It's Alcoholics Anonymous. It's the God of my understanding. That's probably something I should have mentioned right at the start when I started talking about the God. Um, when I saw step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. What a freedom. I can understand God any way that suits me, that fits me. And I had to have that. I needed to have that. I couldn't have the um, higher power or the God of a preacher or of someone else. I can't be told what to believe because what, to, what I believe and have faith in is within me. It's in my soul. It's in my spirit. It's in my heart. It's uniquely mine. And that's why this program is, is tailor-made for each and every one of us because it is about God. And the other um, I'm just going to stop there. I think I've said enough, but thank you again, Janesta and the group for uh, inviting me. Thank you everyone for listening and for being here. God bless.